One of the things that um, uh, is for me very central uh, in trying to rethink what the Dharma is trying to do is to uh, recognize it really as a means whereby we are able to flourish as human beings. Uh, This is a term uh, which is used to translate the Greek word eudaimonia. Sometimes that's rendered well-being, but um, a number of translators describe it as human flourishing, which is the common goal, really, of Aristotle, uh, Socrates, the uh, Hellenic philosophers. In other words, philosophy in those schools was not seen as a dry academic subject, but rather as a way of, um, of healing the soul or the spirit, the psyche. And the goal was really that we come to flourish as human beings in all of our, in all of our capacities. Now for me, the Buddha is um, an image or a person, a, a state, let's say, of a life that is uh, flourishing in an optimal way. And the counter-image of the Buddha is that of Mara. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with Mara. Mara is the Buddhist equivalent of uh, the devil. But Mara literally means uh, the killer. And Mara is... Um, Uh, rooted in the word murtyu in Sanskrit, which means death. Now, if we think of Buddha and Mara as kind of opposite poles, then uh, Buddha stands for life that is is flourishing, that is flowing, that is being realized, that is um, allowing each moment to be as full and rich as possible in terms of our consciousness, our our feelings, our perceptions, and so on. Whereas Mara is the opposite of that. Mara is not just about um, a physical death, although that figure is also used in that sense as, as Yama, the lord of death. But Mara stands for everything in our lives that disables that capacity to flourish. In other words, Mara is a kind of, of inner death. Now, in many of the Buddhist texts, Mara is described as, as craving, as greed, as hatred, delusion. There's a passage in the Diganikaya somewhere where uh, the Buddha says, whenever a person grasps, Mara stands beside them. Now, the the beauty of a a notion like Mara, in other words, a figurative um, image, a kind of counter-image to the figure of the Buddha, is that it goes beyond thinking purely in psychological terms. Mara is not just certain uh, problems we have in our mind that cause us to be stuck and uptight and and rigid, but Mara also suggests that... um, that uh, the world itself, that our bodies, our, 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 our societies, 
have within them elements that tend to want to keep things fixed. There's a sort of um, inertia, a momentum to try to hold things tight, keep things stable, uh, create uh, institutions that last. There's a great reluctance in many areas of our life uh, to really consider uh, changing, doing things differently. So Mara is, in that sense, uh, what constricts and constrains us. Uh, Another term the Buddha uses for Mara is antaka, A-N-T-A-K-A. Antaka means the one who imposes anta, which means limits or ends, uh, borders. So in in the wider perspective, um, the practice that the Buddha teaches, the Dhamma, is um, a methodology that helps us overcome the constrictions, the constraints, the, the, the limiting forces in our lives, and thereby enables our life to begin to flow unobstructed. It's interesting to note that um, in all Buddhist traditions you have this idea of, of hindrances, of obstacles. Now, what of course that implies is that there are things within our lives that our lives that obstruct us, that hinder us, that block us. In other words, once again, it's an image of stasis. You may have found in your meditation that sometimes at the end of a sitting, you might say to yourself under your breath, wow, that was a good one. (laughs) At other times, you say to yourself at the end of a sitting, well, that was a total waste of time. Now, on what basis does one make such a judgment? I can only speak for myself, of course. But for me, it means that if I say, wow, that, that was a good one, it usually means that while I was sitting there quite still, I felt in my body, my feelings, my mind, a certain flow. Things were moving without obstruction. There was a kind of coming to rest in the dynamic of experience itself. And that is very uh, vitalizing, very energizing. When I say to myself at the end of a sitting, well, that was a waste of time, what that usually means is that I didn't feel that in that 45-minute period I got anywhere at all. I probably was just going round and round and round, caught up in a particular obsessive thought, or anxiety, or whatever it might have been, and in such a way felt frustrated, felt somehow um, closed down rather than opened up. And I think these kinds of intuitions we have are useful. And in terms of, um, uh, of this practice, I feel that's a useful way to actually make some sort of sense out of what we're doing. Does it um, help me somehow enter into the flow of life? Or do I find myself stuck in such a way that I feel cut off? I feel disconnected. I feel kind of uh, isolated. These metaphors are useful and they, they run right throughout the, the entire tradition. 
Now, in the uh, texts that describe uh, Mara, um, we often have the, um, uh, the sense that uh, Mara is overcome, Mara is vanquished. And in fact, one of the most famous um, Buddhist iconographical uh, illustrations is called The Conquest of Mara. And this is often said to have occurred right before the Enlightenment itself, the Awakening itself. And you've probably seen these pictures. The Buddha's sitting very serene. And he has his hand, his fingers, touching the ground. It's called the Bhuma Sparsha Mudra, the, the gesture of touching the earth. It, but that gesture is sometimes called the Mara Vijaya Mudra, the gesture of overcoming Mara. And again, I think it goes back to this connectedness with the natural world too. It's a pointing to that. And around the Buddha, seated on his throne, you have a, a, a demonic halo of ghastly-looking figures snarling and pointing swords and arrows at the Buddha, yet the Buddha remains entirely unperturbed. And this is the moment at which he overcomes the forces of Mara. And in most Buddhist traditions, you have the idea that once he's attained this awakening, Mara is basically gone, deleted, eliminated, no more there. So once again, if you go back to the earliest uh, canonical sources, um, we find a different a different take altogether. There's no mention in the Pali canon of the Buddha overcoming Mara in the way that it's classically depicted. That becoming perfect is usually the implication. Mara is understood in the early tradition as being something almost structurally, systemically built into the whole organism and world. It's not something you can just delete by pressing the right button or getting the right state of insight. And so what is surprising is that after the awakening, uh, on many, 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 many occasions, Mara still keeps appearing to the Buddha. In fact, most of the occasions in the canon when Mara appears are after the awakening, when the Buddha has supposedly overcome Mara. So what does that mean? What does it mean to have overcome something that still keeps bothering you? And this, I think, is another way of thinking uh, about what it means to have achieved the sort of liberation or awakening that the Buddha has achieved. One that does not require that one imagines the Buddha or any such person as somehow having been, having deleted from their experience certain difficult or problematic or deluded states of mind, but rather having come to a way of seeing the world in which one can relate to these things in a totally different way. Now, one of the best illustrations of this is found in, in the Padana Sutta. It's a discourse, um, again, found in the Sutta Nipata, which we've mentioned before, the, 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 this earliest stratum of of Pali texts. And there you have um, the first account 
of Mara. First, it starts with him trying to deter the Buddha from becoming the Buddha. But at the end of the text, we have a very curious um, analogy. The Buddha, sorry, Mara has been you know, trying to uh, interfere with what the Buddha is trying to do. And as usual, it doesn't work. And so Mara goes off in a huff. This is the usual way it's depicted. And then we have the text uh, telling us what Mara's thinking. And Mara says, For seven years I have followed the Buddha step by step, but I have not obtained an opportunity against this awakened one who possesses mindfulness. A bird circled a stone which looked like a piece of fat, thinking, Oh, perhaps we'll find something soft here. Perhaps there may be something sweet. But not finding anything sweet, the bird went away from there. Like a crow attacking a rock and becoming despondent, we are attacking Gautama and becoming despondent. And now we will go away. That's a very literal translation of the text. But basically what is being said is that the Mara's, sorry, Buddha's freedom from Mara is not achieved by getting rid of Mara, but by basically not allowing Mara any uh, foothold, any purchase over one's mindful awareness. So in other words... If you don't, if you can find a way so that Mara simply can't get hold of you, then even though Mara is still very much around, you are free from his, its influence. Now, it's a bit like uh, in this analogy, uh, Mara comes zooming into one's mind um, in the same way that the crow sees a piece of what looks like food on the ground, but when it gets to it, it goes peck, 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 peck. Nothing happens and flies away. Now, when Mara uh, uh, appears and, uh, and comes into my mind, it's a bit like he sees a very, very good landing strip, uh, sort of a heliport. <coughs> Uh, with all sorts of ground staff going, come in, Mara. <laughs> all runways are open. <laughs> Whereas it seems that the, uh, the, the kind of uh, awareness that the Buddha is suggesting is one in which we are, um, we are fully aware of feelings of attachment and fear and hatred and grumpiness and so on. But the difference is... Um, we simply notice them for what they are. We're mindful of these things. We see them also as impermanent plays of our own mind. And we don't let ourselves get caught up in them. And this is just as much uh, the case for you and me sitting in this room as it is for the hypothetical Buddha being plagued by Mara in the 4th century B.C., And this, I think, goes very much to the heart of what this practice of mindfulness is about. In other words, it's not a practice in which we're setting ourselves up in some kind of uh, opposition 
you know, this is the good part of my mind, that's the bad part, and we've got to get rid of the bad part, which is often how classical Buddhism presents it. But rather, it's a question of, of, of learning to, 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 to see more clearly from a point of much greater stillness and clarity what is arising in our minds and having the freedom not to go along with it. So the Buddha-Mara dynamic um, is operating for all of us all the time. And the, 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 in a given sitting, let's say, um, we can sometimes notice how there are moments when we see what's happening, what's coming up, and we simply know, see it for what it is and thereby do not allow it or it's simply not able to, to, to embed itself and then take us off on some long story. And there are other times where we feel almost powerless over these forces and we endlessly slept, swept away. So once again, we come back to this idea of, of a freedom and a flow and an attention as opposed to an unfreedom, a stuckness, and a constant loss of attention. So we're touching into something here which I think is very immediate when we do this kind of meditation. We can see it for ourselves. And these kinds of stories, these kinds of parables... Uh, can help us, I think, in, um, in working with this material. Now, the other, the other f uh, way in which, another way in which uh, the Buddha describes Mara is with this rather strange word, Naumuchi. Now, Naumuchi is the name of a, of a demon uh, from Vedic times in India, Namuchi is the demon who prevents the monsoon rains from falling. And you can imagine that in India both then and of course even today, crucial to the survival of life on the subcontinent are the yearly rains. And Namuchi, or Mara, is the supposed a demon who prevents the rains from coming. And it takes Indra, the king of the gods, to strike Mara with his vajra, his scepter, and then Mara releases the waters. So Namuchi means the one who holds back the waters. And uh, the Buddha, therefore, as the counter-image, is that uh, way of being in which the waters of life are flowing freely. Now, the image of water is used quite widely uh, in, in, in Buddhism. And what I'm going to be talking about today is very much a water image, and that's the idea of entering the stream, or stream entry, sotapati. And a person who's achieved that is called a sotapanna. This is often considered uh, to be the, f the, 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 the first moment of awakening, the first time that you actually get what the Dhamma is about. And that experience is described as one in which you enter a stream. Now, I don't think it's accidental that Mara is described as the one who holds back the waters 
And the Buddha's uh, teaching is one that leads you to enter a stream of water. Now, I take this, too, to be very much a, um, an image of life uh, flowing freely. It's also curious that um, the Buddha uses the word sota, stream, in two very opposite senses. You have sotapati, stream entry, which is regarded as a, uh, an extremely uh, good thing. But you also have a term that I mentioned yesterday, pati sota gami, against stream going. So the Buddha says that his teaching goes against the stream, and then the next minute he says, it's like entering the stream. Same word, sota, to- totally different meaning. The, the sota against which the Buddha goes or the Buddha's teaching goes, is in fact sometimes called Mara Sota, the stream of Mara, the stream of the demonic. In other words, that incessant onrush of graspings and fears and boredom, the stuff that keeps sort of pouring forth. And the Buddha's teaching goes against that, but in doing so, it enters into another stream, so the picture that comes to mind, therefore, is like a, 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 a flood of water or a large river pouring in one direction and a countercurrent being initiated within that stream but going up the stream. So two streams going in opposite directions. Now when I gave that image once in a retreat we were leading uh, there was a physicist in the audience and um, and he said well actually if you think about what would happen in the, the the encounter between these two streams is that you would set up um, a condition for turbulence and unpredictability and perhaps something chaotic you couldn't predict how these two streams would complexly interact and I think that's, um, I found that very helpful uh, because I do think that it means that our practice is very often one that's not just happily flowing along without obstruction, but it's almost always going against a countercurrent, whether that countercurrent be our own instincts and habits and drives and fears, or whether that countercurrent be a society, let's say, that doesn't really value these sort of things and is constantly pushing the other way. And I think this is particularly true in our modern consumer society where everything, from the, a large amount of stuff from the media, is basically encouraging us to, uh, to develop those things the Buddha is trying to free us from, namely greed, acquisition, uh, setting up things that we can generate dislike or anger or hatred towards. And so we're going against that stream in so many ways. And that's, I think, why such a practice, although very simple, is very often not very easy. Because we're constantly, as it were, up against uh, a very strong counterforce to what it is that we're uh, aspiring or working towards.
So what is this stream that the Buddha speaks of, entering the stream? Now, there's... Um, muddled. Oh, here we are. Okay, well, there's a very, the Buddha gives a very clear definition of what this stream is. He's, he's talking to Sariputta, his, um, one of his monks, usually considered the most uh, wise of the monks. And he, say, and he says to Sariputta, we say, the stream, the stream, what now, Sariputta, is the stream? And Sariputta replies, this eightfold Noble path, venerable sir, is the stream. That is appropriate seeing, thinking, speaking, acting. That's the stream. And then the Buddha says, and Sariputta we say, a stream enterer, a stream enterer. What now, Sariputta, is a stream enterer? And Sariputta replies, one who possesses this noble eightfold path, venerable sir, is called a stream enterer. Now, here, of course, we're back with the Eightfold Path, we're back with the Four Noble Truths, and we're now considering the Fourth Noble Truth, which is where we left off yesterday. And so, just to recap, I think um, in its, you can boil the Four Noble Truths down to four words... Embrace, let go, stop, and act. Embrace, let go, stop, act. Embrace dukkha, let go of grasping, stop grasping, and create a path. Do something, act. So in this way of reading the four truths which follows the actual order in which the Buddha gave them, rather than a rather convoluted metaphysics that reorders them somewhat, we can see that what the Buddha seems to be describing in the Four Truths is in fact a stream, or at least it's a process of different um, acts that leads us into the stream of the path. But we also have to remember that when we look at the first sermon, we haven't actually read it through, I might at some point. The very beginning of the Buddha's first sermon doesn't start with dukkha, the four truths. It starts with the middle way. He says, monks, I have awoken to a middle way that does not lead to dead ends. It's usually translated as extremes, but actually the word is anta, exactly the same word as in antaka, the synonym for mara, which means the one who imposes limits or ends, dead ends, I think is a good translation. So the middle way is already implying a flow that does not get stuck in dead ends. And where that middle way then leads us is to the Four Noble Truths. This is how the, the discourse is structured. I found a middle way that does not lead to dead ends, and then, without transition, the Buddha then lists the Four Noble Truths, describes how each one is to be acted upon, and then declares that he was not 
awakened until he had accomplished all those tasks. So we have a very clear sequence of ideas. So the, but the stream which we enter um, is, in fact, the Eightfold Path itself. So the embracing of dukkha, which is very much what we do as we meditate, we attend to our existential condition unflinchingly, honestly, openly, noticing the transient, contingent, and often painful nature of that, which leads us into another relationship with our condition that is not premised on clutching, grasping, rejecting, which is the letting go of craving, the falling away of grasping, that leads to moments in which we realize we are free from having to react in that way. And that moment of freedom, or nibbana, is what allows us to enter the stream of the Eightfold Path. Now what is uh, the case in, in many Buddhist traditions is when stream entry is described or defined, it is usually, nowadays, described in terms of relinquishing three fetters, which are uh, egoism, uh, attachment to uh, rites and rituals, and doubt. That, that, that's how that is normally translated. And this is a very common way, and I'm sure many of you have heard it, that stream entry means that you've somehow overcome three fetters and now you're in the stream. Now what is striking about that, that it's a very uh, subjective account. It's very much a change that's going on in the privacy of your own mind. And we do find, uh, certainly there are uh, references to this in the canon, but when we go to the single most sustained section of the Pali Canon on stream entry, it's called the Sotapata Sanyutta, the connected discourses on stream entry, we find a different picture altogether. And um, again, you see, I think what's happened is that uh, another kind of cherry-picking has gone on. The cherry-picking of people who see the Buddhist practice as primarily uh, a spiritual exercise in which we become proficient, that's a very private act, and by pursuing it, which we reach a point of liberation from the cycle of birth and death. We become arahants. That's the classic way. And that um, perspective is one that I think has skewed the um, teaching to fit that particular model, which I've been calling Buddhism 01. But curiously, when we go to the Sangyutta Nikaya and we look at the Buddha's uh, lengthiest presentation on stream entry, this is what we find. He says, monks, uh, a disciple who possesses four things is a stream enterer. What four? Here, monks, a noble disciple possesses confirmed confidence in the Buddha. He possesses confirmed confidence in the Dhamma. He possesses confirmed confidence in the Sangha. And he possesses 
the virtues that are dear to the noble ones. That's stream entry. Now, I suspect many of you who've maybe been on many retreats have probably not heard that. We have, in fact, what you're probably thinking, but wait a minute, that's taking refuge, isn't it? And often taking refuge is nowadays um, thought of as a kind of entry ritual into the Buddhist church. In other words, you, you decide at some point in your life that you're going to be a Buddhist, for whatever reasons, and then this is how you sign up and join the club. <laughs> now, there are people, of course, who, who, who challenge that. And in fact, I think one of the best examples is Sangharachita, who's from the beginning of his teaching, has, has made this taking of refuge a very central part of the practice, and I think he's absolutely right. But the, the point here is that uh, taking refuge is not just an entry ritual into Buddhism. It actually lies at the very core of stream entry. Now, Perhaps one might say, well, of course, at stream entry, everything is, this is going on at a much deeper level. I'm not so sure of that. I have a feeling, and I might be wrong, that um, stream entry in some ways means that moment in which you somehow go on message with the Buddha, as we might say it. You kind of get what, that, what he's on about. And this, if it is taken to heart is essentially a, um, a conscious reorientation of one's values. In other words, instead of living your life um, as an endless pursuit of, 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 of gratification and endless avoidance of displeasure and, and, and trying any way possible to sort of manipulate your life and world to achieve such goals, which, as, as we've seen, are actually... It'll just keep on going. It's saying, no, I'm going to live my life from a different perspective altogether. One in which I will seek to try to make every occasion, every moment, an opportunity for being more awake, to take refuge in, in the Buddha, in, in, in uh, awakenedness. And likewise, every moment to, uh, to try to cultivate uh, this practice of the Dhamma, through whether it be mind mindfulness or concentration or wisdom. And I'm going to um, do this within a network of relationships, of friendships, uh, with others who are likewise committed. In other words, it has a social dimension. It's not just me on my own, but actually I'm going to um, uh, cultivate uh, connections with people who feel the same way as I do. And that's called sangha, community. And within that reorientation, then I will seek to cultivate those virtues which are dear to the noble ones. So stream entry in, from this perspective um, is, is rather than being a kind of uh, inner readjustment of some psychological or mental state, it becomes... Um, uh, an overall reorientation of one's personal and social life. And that's a very different sort of picture. Uh, it's also one that um, 
suggest that the practice we're doing um, is always uh, concerned with uh, the totality of our behaviors and thoughts. It's not some privileged spiritual practice. And I often get frustrated uh, when people use this word practice as though it refers to some kind of exercise I do on a cushion once a day. So you hear Buddhists say, oh, I'm sorry, I've got to go and do my practice. Now what that means is they're going to go off somewhere quiet and, uh, and, and light a stick of incense and crunch down on a cushion and then for 30 minutes do something overtly Buddhist. And then they'll come back and say, oh, I've done my practice now. Um, <clears throat> have you got a bottle of wine? <laughs> or whatever it might be. Um, now this, I think, is a very reductive um, and not terribly helpful way of thinking of the term practice. When the Buddha uses the word practice, and I'm going to suggest that the closest word is this word bhavana, um, which means to bring something into being, to create something, literally, then he applies it to the entire Eightfold Path. Every step of the Eightfold Path is a practice. So the way we see things, think about things, the way we communicate, the way we embody our life in the world, the way we work, in other words, the way we earn our living, gain our livelihood, the way we focus our energies and efforts, the way we attend, the way we concentrate, all of that is practice. (coughs) Now, uh, uh, again, this points to the fact that uh, the Buddha seems to be putting considerable emphasis on uh, the whole of our life, not just one privileged bit of it. And I think it's quite telling that today, in many Asian countries, um, the word bhavana has come to mean meditation. Uh, So when a Buddhist says, I'm going to do my bhavana in Sri Lanka, where they use that word, it again means I'm going to sit, squat, squat on a cushion and watch my breath. When the term was translated into Tibetan, it was translated as gom, and gom is the general word in Tibetan for meditation. You have the gom lam, the path of meditation, which follows the, the, the experience of stream entry, and again it's privileged in terms of meditation. Rather than seeing that the, uh, the, the term really means cultivation, it means to cultivate virtues, to cultivate our minds, our thoughts, our, our, our words, our work. All of that is bhavana. And it's in this sense, I feel, that Buddhist practice um, is really about our, our whole uh, experience of life. And it's not as though our real practice is doing the meditation and everything else is a kind of optional extra but rather I feel we need to re-embrace the totality of our lives as our practice. And again, you've probably heard this many times, but to really take that seriously means that we give as much attention to how we communicate to other people or how we work in our office as we do to how we cultivate mindfulness. If there's to be a balance. So... Again, instead of privileging 
you know, sitting and doing formal meditation. Um, and if you're good at that, then you're generally considered to, have, to be a successful Buddhist. Like the really accomplished Buddhists are considered to be those who have reached some level of enlightenment, some level of inner experience. And that's what really matters. The fact that the rest of their life is a mess doesn't really matter. That's the thing that counts. So that I would question. And I think if we are to think of, 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 of this practice as, as, um, as, 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 as the cultivation of a way of life that leads to human flourishing, then we do need to seriously take everything into account. We'll notice, however, that when we look through the canonical texts for, let's say, um, instruction on right speech or livelihood, we find very, very little. That the texts themselves are biased towards cultivating uh, inner states of mind. And that's probably a reflection of the uh, community that has been in charge of recording, remembering and preserving these texts, i.e. monks. But let's imagine that rather than the Pali Canon having been preserved in memory by a group of, uh, of ascetics... It had been preserved by, let's say, a guild of craftsmen. It's a possibility, I suppose. Would we still have that same bias, or would there be another bias, that of the craftsperson, rather than the ascetic? I don't think, given the structure of the Eightfold Path, that one should assume that uh, one bias is somehow normative and the others are not. I think we can question that. At the same time, though, I do think we have to take into account the idea that stream entry is the overcoming of these three fetters. But again, I think we need to rethink what they mean. I mentioned at the beginning of this talk that the first one is, I've translated as egoism, the second one is attachment to rites and rituals, and the third one is doubt. Now, what does that mean? The, um, uh, the first uh, fetter or obstacle, again, we're in the lang language of what blocks, what constricts, which is the Mara language. The word is satkaya ditti, which I'm translating as egoism. Sometimes it's translated as the view of individuality. And what that means, I think, is that we we reach a point sometimes in our lives where we suddenly recognize that we are not the be-all and the end-all of the universe. That the world does not turn around me. I think rather than thinking of this as literally negating any notion of self, which, as we'll see tomorrow or the next day, is really not what the Buddha was trying to do. And one, Another big obstacle, uh, I think, in understanding the Dhamma is this notion that the Buddha said there is no self. I'm not sure he did. And I'll give you some counterexamples to suggest another way of looking at this. What the Buddha was critiquing was the notion of a permanent, fixed, Atman-like self that is unconditioned. 
that the Buddha has no time for at all. Um, but also um, the idea that um, I am a kind of fixed entity that will not change. And I think this is a consequence both of his social environment in which every person is defined in their identity at birth in a kind of divine way. You are a, a worker or a merchant or a, a priest or a, a ruler but also psychologically recognizing that this kind of gut instinct feeling I have of being me, which built into which is a, is, is a feeling of kind of, of permanence, doesn't change, that that's something that in fact is a fiction. And through the practice of paying attention, not only in meditation, but I think a lot of modern psychology and philosophy even science, brain science, is showing us that once we start looking more deeply into our experience, there is no central nugget or core me that can be found. And it's that moment when we suddenly realize that we are not as real, as fixed, as uh, immutable as we instinctively feel, that possibilities begin to open up. I don't have to be like this. I am not a person of fixed ability or fixed intelligence or fixed anger. That these things are all fluid, changeable, and I can put into practice disciplines and behaviors that can begin to transform this sense. So I begin to realize that I'm actually more like a story I am the ongoing story of my life that is the, the cumulative um, response that I've had to everything that's happened to me, which leaves me where I find myself now, but open to what will come along in the future that I can respond to in different ways. I can, as it were, cultivate and... Um, evolve and develop this sense of who I am. I'm not fixed. That, I think, is what is meant here. Now, the second thing that falls away is usually translated as attachment to rules and rituals. And this is often thought of as rejecting, you know, Brahmanic rites, making fire sacrifices and so on. And, again, that doesn't have much relevance to us. But it is a very um, <clears throat> mistaken uh, translation of what the texts, the earliest texts, actually say. The earliest text, <clears throat> and this is again Sutta Nipata, verse 231, if you're interested. Uh, the, the word that's used in Pali here is silabhata. Now, silabhata just means uh, vows and virtues. That's all it means. In other words, you... Um, you become free of the fetter of vows and virtues. And in la in later, even within the Pali, this becomes qualified as silabhata paramasa, which means attachment to vows and virtues. But the earliest source just says vows and virtues, or something, sila, shila. We know that as, as, as morality. Let's say vows and morality. So what does it mean that on becoming a stream entrant you abandon vows and morality? What does that mean? 
Does it mean you become an out-and-out hedonist? Now you're free to go and do what the hell you like? I don't think so. I think what it's pointing to um, is something I mentioned earlier, something like a situation ethic. In other words, we um, uh, do not regard the good as simply uh, conforming to a certain set of legalistic virtues. In other words, not I do not kill, do not steal, do not abuse, do not lie. That, and morality basically means observing that and just going along in your life according to the rules and regulations. But rather, we at this point perhaps, we have reached uh, a sensibility uh, to others, to ourselves, in which our moral choices are made according to uh, the, the demands of the specific, unique situation we are working with. So we no longer define our moral life in terms of adhering to rules, or rituals if you wish, but rather as a response that comes from a mind that is not driven by desire, hatred, fear, and so on. That's, in a way, what we are freed from in, in, in these moments of insight. And the third one is doubt. And what that means here, I think, is simply that um, we're now no longer um, uncertain about the way our practice is going. At this point, and I think perhaps many of us have such uh, confidence uh, that we, we kind of trust now um, the way in which we need to go. We have a confidence in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, the idea of awakening, the path that leads and promotes it and the community that supports it. But there's another feature of stream entry that um, is often uh, cited, um, but it's usually not listed along with the things I've just mentioned. And that is that um, the stream entrant, the one who's entered the path, the fourth noble truth, becomes independent of others in the Buddha's teaching. Becomes independent of others in the Buddha's teaching. Now this is a, an extension of the idea that, of having gone beyond doubt. You now know for yourself in some deep intuitive way what this practice is about. And again, I wouldn't raise that bar too high. What's happened, as happens characteristically in religion, is that over time, the expertise and the knowledge, and in the case of Buddhism, the enlightenment and the awakening and so on, all of this becomes progressively shunted over to the elite um, people who hold power. In the case of Buddhism, usually monks and teachers. They're the ones who've got it, and we're the ones who don't. And a bigger and bigger gap begins to open up between the two. But that doesn't appear at all to have been the case in the Buddha's time. So we find passages like this. This is Majjhima 73, where the Buddha says, there are not only 100 or 500, but far more men and women lay followers 
clothed in white, in other words, not wearing robes, enjoying sensual pleasures, who carry out my instruction, respond to my advice, have gone beyond doubt, become free from perplexity, gained intrepidity or courage, and become independent of others in my teaching. So here we have a very explicit um, recognition that stream entry in the Buddha's time was not something reserved for the spiritual elite and those who had done you know, numerous hours of fierce meditation on the cushion, but actually is something that is quite widespread within the community of lay men and women who enjoy sensual pleasures. That's us. <laughs> and such people have become independent of others in my teaching. In other words, they're not dependent upon external authorities to tell them what Buddhism is about. So there's very much here, I think, a message of, of self-reliance, autonomy, which is right at the heart of the very um, uh, path itself. It's non-authoritarian, th 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 this approach. And I'd like to conclude with an example that, of a stream enterer of the Buddha's time, a man called Sarakani the Sakyan. You may not have heard of Sarakani the Sakyan, but here goes. Now on that occasion, Sarakani the Sakyan had died and the Buddha had declared him to be a stream entrant. Thereupon, a number of Sakyans deplored this and they said, oh, wonderful, wonderful indeed, sir. Now who won't be a stream entrant when the Buddha has declared Sarakani to be a stream entrant? <laughs> Sarakani the Sakin was too weak for the training. He drank intoxicating drink. Sarakani the Sakin appears to have been the local town drunk <laughs> or the local pothead or whatever Sarakani was into. <laughs> now, this was then reported to the Buddha. And um, the Buddha said If one speaking rightly were to say of anyone, he was a lay follower who had gone for refuge over a long time to the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha, which is the definition of stream entry. It is of Sarakani the Sakyan that one could rightly say this. Now, admit, you know, obviously this is not a passage that is declared widely in Buddhist circles. <laughs> and in fact, it's even slightly surprising that it's survived the editor's scissors in the canon. <laughs> because it seems to be saying something rather shocking. Um, that, uh, but curiously, it also resonates with another passage. Um, this is uh, Sutta Nipata, verse 230, which is the verse that actually follows the one about the three fetters that I cited before. This is a very, very strange idea. It says, Those who clearly understand the, four, the noble truths well taught by the one of deep wisdom, even though they are very negligent or heedless, pamada, is the opposite of being attentive and mindful, pamada, will not take an eighth existence. I mean, this is technical. What it means is they are a stream enterer. And this outstanding jewel, 
this person who is very negligent is in the Sangha, is an object of refuge. And the verse concludes, by this truth may there be well-being. Now this, I think, is pointing to exactly the same thing. And again, it's, it's surprising because, it, well, to me it has a rather Christian ring, that Sarakani the Sakin basically is the sinner. And we're all sinners. We're all blowing it all the time. But that doesn't mean that we are not fully committed and engaged in the practice of the path. I find this rather inspiring, actually. Um, and it, again, takes the idea that the, the spiritual people are the ones who, uh, you know, who, who, who have radiant smiles and, uh, and don't put a wrong, never make a wrong move. And everything they say is wise and compassionate. I, I wish there were many, many people like that. But in reality, we are fallible creatures. In reality, we are constantly struggling with Mara. But that does not mean that we are not part of the Sangha, the community, and that we are not those who have entered the stream. Now, of course, you know, these passages are fairly uh, rare, but they're there. That they allow us, and it's another cherry. This is a the Sarakani passage is a, is a cherry that's marinated in kirsch. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a cherry nonetheless. <laughs> and it's, again, another passage that really makes us rethink and ask, well, what is going on here? We seem to have a different perspective being suggested. A different voice is coming through. And it's that voice is the one I, that I keep trying to hear. So that's an example of it. So we'll stop here today. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.